Inside the Album with Don. I'm Don Seckler. And with Tommy, that's Tommy Hilkin over here. How you doing, Tommy? Good to see you. Don, always good to see you. And yes, I am Tommy Hilkin. <laughs> nice. This is our second episode last week. We started off mm. with Black Sabbath, their debut album. If you like Black Sabbath, check that episode out. One of the things we want to ask you to do is make sure that you subscribe. So if you're on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. Whatever platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, hit that subscribe button. It can really help us out. Today, we are going to dive into an album by the Rolling Stones, and it's going to be Sticky Fingers, which is, uh, of course, a classic, one of the one of the all-time greats. I was thinking about, you know, why the Stones, right? We could have thought of Exile on Main Street, Let It Bleed, Beggar's Banquet, right? There's and a million we went, of them. Yeah, and we went with <laughs> Sticky Fingers, and I'm so glad we did. I can't wait to go over this today. It's going to be just amazing. I really Yeah, do. so, you know, and this is kind of, you know, even though it's a well-known album, I think because of the cover a lot of for a lot of people, but it's still, there's so many great songs on this album. It's really, I mean, it's almost a greatest hit. So we're going <laughs> to dive into that a little bit. It's interesting you say that. I just, we could take the dive, but, you know, going over the album, listening to the album, just say, this, this is the greatest hits album, man. Think about yeah, it. It really yeah, is. It really is. Not a bad song on either side, which is always nice to say either side. because Exactly. <laughs> right? There is so, some B side. Yeah, exactly. Right. We are also doing some work with a charity called Music for Mark. Tommy, you tell us about that charity and, and how people can get involved. Thanks, Don. We're just keeping the music alive. Uh, it's our foundation. It's called Music for Mark. And what we do is we raise funds so we can give kids musical lessons and musical instruments. So really what it comes down to is we love the music. We're here talking about the music, our life, you and I, since we connected, built a relationship, started out as a friendship, but it was built on music. It's what our love is. So what we want to do is through this, through the podcast, is bring music to the world. Get kids some guitars, get them some pianos, get them some music lessons. That's our goal, raise awareness for the foundation through inside the album. And I think it's a perfect fit hand in hand and, you know, God knows it's what we were meant to do. So that's yeah. what it's about. Let's bring music to the world. Exactly. Right. The more, yeah. the better. <laughs> uh, think about so, it. Right. So with, with Sticky Fingers, like I was saying before, it's mm. such a classic record. It's got really like top Rolling Stones songs, starting off with Brown Sugar right out of the gate. Wild Horses. Can't You Hear Me Knocking. Bitch. Dead Flowers. <laughs> and, you know, so it, it's really... I mean, half the album is greatest hits. It really is. And that's why I love it so much. You know, going forward, what you were saying is what, what it is about this album that I love, right? And we say it's almost greatest hits, but the songs people don't hear and the songs that people don't hear on the radio are just killer. And, yeah. and the reason that, you know, so it's kind of like the radio took over these popular songs, which we're going to go over. But right. the songs that maybe you might not listen to or hear, you have to. Uh, you know, I really they are great. You, you have They're to great, listen great, to them. Yeah, yeah, tremendous music. Yeah, so, a lot went uh, on with this album. Yeah, so, well, let's talk about the band first, because the band was kind of in a state of flux at this point in their career. Sure. Yeah. Um, this album was their 11th album, uh, and it was 1971 when it was released, but it was mostly recorded in uh, 69, 70. 
Um, so you got Mick Jagger, which everybody knows, you know, moves like Jagger, all that kind of fun <laughs> stuff. I Keith them. Richards, which of course everybody knows because the guy just goes on and on and is always rock solid. Uh, Bill Wyman was the bass player at the mm. time, long time bass player with the wow. Stones, ju just left, I think, uh, in the early 2000s. And then Charlie Watts, just rock solid drummer. Um, <laughs> and th the flux was from the other guitar player, which who was Brian Jones at the mm -hmm. beginning. And Brian had a lot of issues with drugs. And I, I think during the recording of the album before this, Let It Bleed, Brian didn't show up or showed up so out of it that they had to bring in Mick Taylor to play those guitar parts. And you know, it, it's the sad part of the Stones being is, you know, Brian Jones literally got fired from the Stones and soon after his life went completely downhill and he died, you know. So yeah, yeah, he died actually parts. a month a month after, you know, they, they let him go, um, yeah, yeah. you know, which is super sad. Mm. Um, and, you know, think about it where you're in a band where you're more out of it than Keith Richards in the <laughs> late 60s, early 70s. It's you know, good, <laughs> it, it is a bar, right? It is a yeah. bar. That you have to try. Not too many people are going to ever reach the bar of Keith Richards. <laughs> right. So if you look at the movie that came out, Gimme Shelter, which was about the Stones right before this. Uh, where they played at Altamont and there was mm. a, a stabbings with Hell's Angels. It was a nightmare and a mess. Nightmare. But one of the interesting things is when all hell breaks loose and it's right in front of the stage, you can see what's going on. There's mayhem. And Mick goes over to Keith and Keith is playing, I think, Sympathy for the Devil. And he's so out of it. He's just jamming away. And Mick's like <laughs> it, holding his shoulders and shaking him going, Keith, stop playing. Yeah, yeah. we got to do something, so, man. Yeah. You know, when you say, you know, I know, you know, it's it's, it's definitely very sad that Mick Taylor was, uh, you know, or um, Brian Jones had had the issues with, with drugs and, and stuff. But Keith was equally... Um, you know, equally out of it at the time. So, uh, oh, yeah. and there's also some other things where Keith wasn't even in the studio for a couple of the recordings, which we'll talk about. Yeah. With Mick Taylor on board, it kind of changed the, uh, the Stone sound a little bit because Keith found that he was able to kind of do more of that weaving that the Stones do with the guitar. You know, you have, now it's, it's Keith and Ron Wood but back then, Mick Taylor was kind of that, you know, a similar blues player who could fit into that kind of pocket that Keith mm. left. Because Keith, when Keith Richards plays guitar, he leaves a lot of space, oh. which you don't see very often. You know, Keith Richards is a truly, truly, truly down-to-earth rock and roller, Chuck Berry-esque, you know, where just a few chords, that's all you need. I'm going to play a couple chords. That's right. what I do. And, you know, Mick Taylor brought fluidity to the band. He made yeah. the songs more fluid. They actually, he was such a terrific guitar player, which we'll talk about the challenges he had with the Stones being so good. Yeah. That, uh, it's something interesting, but he brought fluidity to the songs, which made them into the, the lovely, truly tremendous songs that they are. He brought so much to the band. Yeah. And they, they really play off each other really well. And really that makes well. a difference when you get a band that can, you know, jam and go with the flow and stuff comes out of it you know it, it brings another another level of musicianship to it so that was an interesting thing and it really it kind of changed the stones into it, it wasn't like they weren't a riff band before but they became much more of these you know memorable riffs that, that were really really stuck in your head and the guitars mm. playing off each other 
Uh, so it really changed their sound, which is interesting. Um, yeah, th this is certainly an album of riffs, classic riffs that if anybody hears it, you just played a riff. You oh, go right sure. to where you go right to where you were, where you first heard it, where what song it is. Yeah, yeah. powerful power. And we'll discuss that as we go along when we start to talk about the songs. But the riffs, you're right, is really what made this album a classic. Yeah. And to me, this is the first album really with I mean, this is to me where the stones sound that we know it as really kind of came together. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So another thing, when we look back at that time, so it's 1971. So this is kind of close to, you know, what we talked about last episode, which was the first Black Sabbath album. But on the charts, they were seeing stuff like Three Dog Night, Elton John, Janis Joplin. Uh, the other interesting thing was the, the Beatles solo, solo albums started yep. coming out. So you had the George Harrison album. John had one uh, with Yoko and the Plastic Ono Band, I think it was, or yep. maybe it was not at the time. And then also McCartney had McCartney had his first album. Oh, yeah. The McCartney album. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. So, you know, there, there was kind of a rock thing going on. I mean, you know, oh. so the album, the album actually did really well. It got to number two in Holland. It got to number five in the U.S., got to number seven in the U.K. And not a pop record, you know, and pop at the time was, was a lot different than it is now. It was a lot yeah. more laid back. You know, the Stones took this to a whole nother level. When you think about it, right, you were mentioning Three Dog Night, uh, Nice Band, you know, the, the Beatles, a nice band. Mm -hmm. you know, the Stones literally in their mind, even when they were writing their music, they always wanted to have that edge, the rougher edge than everyone else, right? They were the bad boys of rock and roll. You know, it's right. the they thought of themselves that this is who we are. We're always, because think about that, competing with the Beatles, right? Now you, you look throughout history, right? There's people who right. love the Stones and there's people who love the Beatles. And yeah. I mean, you have a balance where you got to pick out which one is which. Not too many people have a true love for both because it's that different in the music. Yeah, so different. I mean, the Stones are so heavily blues based. You know, you uh, Keith is a blues player. Yeah. And um, w one of the things that's actually interesting about that is, so Keith Richards plays a lot of open tunings. And he learned this from the old blues guys who kind of cheated. So they tune the guitar so when you hit it, there was a chord and then you use basically one finger on the fretboard, you know, right. so you're, it's you're great. whacking through those chords. Right. You're not even fretting really. You just uh, kind of putting a uh, bar and sliding it yeah. up and down. Just, just thinking about what you're saying with the, you know, I got the blues is on the album and one of their heroes and why it is so bluesy. And they always were of the Beatles. We were just saying George Harrison was the only guy that really took some, you know, liking to the earlier music before him. And uh, but in reality, Keith Richards was hooked in, and Mick loved Muddy Waters. A yeah. big influence on them was Muddy. Yeah, and yeah. The, the guitar work you're talking about. I just want to throw this out. You know, I remember when people used to talk about B.B. King, they used to say it was not the notes that he played. It was the ones that he didn't. Exactly. I love that. Right. Because that was his thing. Like he was and saying about Keith. Yeah. And you definitely see that in Keith Richards playing. It's the spaces around the notes. Yep. So, you know, he comes in there and you can see it when he's on stage. It's, dah, 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 dah. you know, he's, it's, he's barely strumming. You know, a lot of guys are up there. Blah, 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 and he just is hitting that boom. It's accents. It's, it's you know, it's that space and the, and the sound. Again, the, the, the quiet and, the, and the, the noise, you know, that, that makes a big contrast. It makes a big difference in how it sounds. 
with the stones done, when you're saying that, really sit down one day and listen to the music, right? We get caught up because they had such big hits that you just, you get into the song. But really, if you think about it, because I wanted to mention this, between Keith and Charlie Watts, both of them play a similar type of, Charlie Watts plays a very basic, but dynamic drums. He never misses a beat. He's always spot on, right? He's like, he's almost well, like the perfect you look at his kit. You look at his <laughs> drum kit, right? He's got a one tom-tom, a four tom, I think, <laughs> and his bass, you know, uh, snare and, and bass drum and, and a couple of cymbals. Right. He's, a, he's an old jazz drummer. And so, you know, yeah, yeah it's- he, But listen, yeah. listen to it. And it'll blow your mind when you listen to the music. Forget about it. That's a great hit. Forget that it's brown sugar. Listen to the music behind the lyrics, everything that's coming out of it. It's actually amazing what the sound they've made. It really yeah, is. for sure. Yeah. Sticky Fingers was the first album released on Rolling Stone Records, and mm. the Stones had finished up their first contract. They had a, a contract with one company in America, one in, in England, and that it was all, um, you know, had run its course. And so they decided to kind of get away from their former manager, who was Alan Klein. And this guy kind of screwed them over by ending up with their copyrights for the 60s material. And, uh, you know, uh, depending on who you asked, there, there was some shadiness in how that happened. Mm. Um, so it was a chance for them to kind of get out on their own and control their own destiny a little bit more. Back in the day, when you look at it, you're losing the rights to your own music. Happened quite a bit without sure. even knowing it. When you signed with a record company, yeah, you, know, you became kind of sort of property and everything you owned became theirs. So right. think about all the music that the Stones, I don't want to say lost, but you know, really had no control over. Interesting yeah. way to look at it. So let's talk about the cover a little bit because it's very uh, interesting. You know, I don't know too many people who have the original cover from when it was first released anymore. I was lucky enough to see a copy when it, yeah. you know, back, back in the day. So t tell us about the album cover and what makes it so special. Well, when you think about it, the first time I saw it, I was I was just a kid. Well, it has a it has a guy standing with his pants. All you can see is his lower half of his torso right. and a pair of pants with a, a golden zipper that actually worked. You know, yeah, and, and the, I, the belt buckle worked too. <laughs> so when you when you think about eye catching and everything that's not supposed to happen, but it's pure rock and roll. And yeah, that's what it was. It was a zipper that actually worked. The guy I might as well say a guy who had a bulge, you know, and, <laughs> and like down to his knee. <laughs> and, and, and I'll break it here. It's not Jagger. That was the rumor. No, that break was the it. rumor. Yeah. Yeah. That it was Jagger, but we, we know. But that album cover, I remember seeing it for the first time, being locked right into it. It was so different than anything else anybody ever did. And that being said, the Stones were big believers in investing in marketing and advertising and branding, right? You know, think about yeah. the logo we're going to talk about, but that album was branded, right? So, right. so much without even seeing the music, people were running out to get that album. But yeah. that being said, Don, let me throw this out there. If anybody listening, send us a picture if you have the original of you holding it. We'd love to see it. We'd yeah, that would be up, great, right? Yeah, we'd love to put it up on the website. So, yeah, any of you guys like our age... Send it through to us. We'd love to see it. Really would. Yeah. So, and because of that male bulge in the, you know, in the pants <laughs> on the album cover, yeah, um, they the had to make bulge. a separate cover for some other countries that weren't, 
you know, wanted to censor it. So they actually have one and, and we'll sh we show it here. It's, uh, it's actually fingers in, in what says Fowler's treacle or treacle. I don't even know how to say that. But it yeah. basically looks like fingers in a can of blood. So, right. Right. so <laughs> I don't know sort of if that's motor, better. Motor oil or grease or something. Yeah, yeah. 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 It could, it's kind of kind of gross. You know what it was? The first country that it totally outlawed, it was France. They, it wasn't allowed oh, okay. to come in. Yeah, they just, they literally cut it out and said, no, it's not coming in. And France and Europe, you know, like you just said, I don't know where it was ranked in Europe, but, you know, it's a, it's a big, big industry for them over from being in England. And if France outlaws it, they had to do something to get the album sold. So they didn't really think twice about it. They just switched it up and changed it. Yeah. So there are those two versions out there. Uh, almost everybody knows the pants one. Yep. Um, but this is also the first time, like you mentioned before, Tom, that they used that that tongue and lips logo. Yeah. Which is now synonymous with the Rolling Stones. Yeah, believe it or not, it's it's going to be celebrated, I believe, 50 years. It is they, 50, yeah. 50 years. And they only did that, created that logo is when they created Rolling Stones Records. They wanted to brand themselves differently, go forward as a completely different entity than they were. Mm -hmm. And let's face it. Um, it's it's like the number one T-shirt in rock and roll. That logo. Oh yeah, well, super recognizable. It's almost yeah. like a Nike, you know. Oh, so it's so right. well known. Yeah, it's up there. As we would say, it's probably iconic. <laughs> <laughs> I think you could definitely safely go with iconic. Yeah, let's go. With, we'll go with iconic on that one. <laughs> yeah, everybody has it somewhere somehow. Everybody knows what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So here's something that's kind of interesting. Uh, so when they recorded this album, they wanted to record in Muscle Shoals, which is a, mm. was a, a well-known R&B studio. These guys are super into R&B. Yep. And at the time, they actually went to the wrong place. Mm. <laughs> so there is actually, the, the studio they went to was called Muscle Shoals Sound. But it was actually in Sheffield, and that's right next door to the town of Muscle Shoals. And in Muscle Shoals, there's another studio that was called Rick's Hall, Rick Hall's Famous or Fame Studios. I think it was like it was Rick Hall's Fame Studios. So that's where Aretha Franklin, Percy Sledge, Otis Redding, and a whole bunch of other classic soul and R&B mm -hmm. people had recorded. And the Stones went to this other studio, which was not the same studio. So, you know, they walked into this place and it was kind of a, a little dumpy studio, but they went in there and recorded part of the album there. That's awesome. Yeah, you know, yeah. Muscle Shoals, many a person has recorded, like you said, one of the greatest places you could ever go. So I can understand why they took their album there, you know? Yeah, exactly. So they, they did uh, part of it there. And, and they did uh, recording also at London's Olympic Studios. And also Mick Jagger had a, a countryside home in England uh, with a mobile studio kind of nearby. And actually that's a place where Led Zeppelin actually recorded a bunch of their albums at Mick's place. So that's crazy. <laughs> How would you like to be a fly on the wall there, man? Yeah. Could you imagine, right? Well, listen, you know, it's it, it's the ages of sex and drugs and rock and roll, man. And that's it's exactly what was going on. And that's exactly what they were bringing to the world. So very, very incredible time of our lives. 
So let's dive into the songs here. So yes. uh, the album starts off with Brown Sugar, which, uh, you know, I have to imagine pretty much everybody, except maybe some younger people may not know it, but um, that song actually was debuted at Altamont while they were, you know, before they had uh, actually recorded. So they had been working on it a little bit. Um, it turns out that Mick Jagger actually wrote that song when he was in Australia doing some kind of filming for a, a movie. And so when you hear that riff, that dun, 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 you can kind of, when you know, know that, you can listen to it and go, oh yeah, that's really not Keith. That's, that's a much more, uh, I don't want to say simplistic, but it's definitely not a, a guitar great riff you know what i mean so you hear it and it's it, it is a great riff definitely yeah but it's it's you can tell that it's not somebody who's a, a you know an expert expert guitar player i think right you know what and when you think about all the guitar work ever done you know some of the greatest chords even you know, when you think about it you know the opening of layla right everybody it's like you know those chords everybody in the world knows them it's yeah. not the most difficult thing in the world to play, but everybody yet thinks it is. It's well, and that's the thing. It doesn't have to be complicated. Rock and roll, a lot of times, oh. is very simple. Um, but this is also the first album that Jagger actually played guitar on. So he hadn't really been playing guitar, even though he is a musician and a guitar player and you know mm -hmm. has a lot of musical talent. He's a great drummer, allegedly. Um, yeah. So you know that all those things are kind of going to the mix of this song. And so Jagger basically wrote this song in a field and then they came back and, and you know, worked it into what it is now. Well, you think about the lyrics too, you know, it's, it's, I was actually listening to them, going over them, hearing them again and just so fresh. And, you know, it's kind of like a, a tough thing that if you were going to bring it into today's world, it's, you know, it's based on a slave ship and slaves, and black women and sex. And yeah, it's kind of heavy duty where these guys were free to talk about that in the, uh, in the early seventies and throughout, and then the world changed, but you look at those lyrics, they're pretty heavy duty. You know what I mean? What yeah. What are talking about? And it goes back to them kind of going for that kind of grungier edge, you know, where they're going to be the dirty bad boys. And, you know, it, it, so it gets, a, I feel like a little misogynistic at times. Um, but, you know, <laughs> back then and, you know, you don't, back then times were so different than they are now. And, and what was acceptable to say and things like that or to talk about is a lot different. A uh, different um, world, different world and, and all good that we were part of it, lived it, know it, you know what I mean? You know, it's just a completely different outlook on way things, guys treated women and how w women treated guys. It's it yeah. goes vice versa back then. You know, we lived through it. These were my, these were my teen years, you know, so yeah. I get it. I know what it's all about, but what about, you know, I just want to touch on the sax, you know, uh, you have the name there. It's uh, Keys is his last Bobby name. Keys. Yeah. Yeah. He, he toured with the Stones for over 40 years and just the sax in Brown Sugar. You know, this guy, no wonder the Stones, believe me when I tell you the Stones didn't hang on to a lot of guys. Yeah. Right? Because we'll talk about that a little further about really who the Stones are and who they always will be. But man, he was amazing you know, and just toured with them forever. And really in a lot of their live shows, he tore it up. He was the oh, guy. Oh, yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, and this was, you know, they, they brought in horns on this album. And it was, again, a kind of a throwback to that R&B. And yep. if you listen to a lot of the soul R&B stuff in the late 60s, early 70s, 
huge horn sections, you know, big, everything was horn driven, even the pop music, you know, you get into like, like Herb Alpert and that kind of stuff. There was, there were whole albums that were just driven by horns. So they brought these horns in. And, you know, the thing about horns, especially like a saxophone, it's very similar to guitar sound. So the way the notes are and the, and you know, the sound, you could take a good saxophone part and easily play it on guitar. Yeah, you, you know, can, so you can play a lead, and people have done that, taken a saxophone part and played it on guitar. You know? Yeah, and I, and I love that you just said that. I've heard it a few different times throughout where the sax player wasn't there and somebody took it and played it on guitar. It's a great yeah, way to look yeah. at so it. Yeah, so it's definitely can swap those out, and it, it brings another level of the. To me, the horns are are so much a part of this album, and we'll talk about it a little bit more. You hear it on the "Can't You Hear Me Knocking" and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Um, back to the lyrics on this. So Keith Richards in his book has said that that whole scarred old slaver knows he's doing all right. (laughs) He said that he thinks that somebody at the publishing company came up with that because he thinks Nick Jagger was actually singing Sky Dog Slaver because Uh, Sky Dog was a nickname for, do you know who? I, I think it's Dwayne Allman. It is. It's Dwayne yeah, Allman. Dwayne Allman, yeah. At the time, a regular at the Muscle Shoals Studios. Nice. And nice. He stoned all the time. So they called <laughs> him Sky Dog. Wow. See, this is this is truly inside the album, right? That who would ever think of somebody's nickname? And you know, the way Mick spoke, who knows, right? What somebody heard from really what he said. Yeah. Another interesting fact about Brown Sugar is there is a second version of this song that was cut with Eric Clapton on guitar. There you go. And also Al Cooper on keyboards, who is a guy who was around at that time a lot with the Beatles and and I think with the Stones as well. Um, Al Al Cooper played with a lot of people, Blood, Sweat and Tears. Yeah. Al Cooper was one of those guys that everybody loved to have around because he was a major talent. So the, the, some of the guys, I think it was Keith who said this, but he said, yeah, the Eric Clapton take was great, but it wasn't the Stones because it was Eric just, you know, going off, which was great, but it didn't really fit into what the Stones were. They weren't really a, uh, as much of a soloist. You know, there's not a lot of, there's a couple of guitar solos in the Stones, of course, but not too many. Well, as you just mentioned, literally, it was probably too good. Yeah, yeah, completely. I think, uh, you know, I think it was really good. It was released in 2015 as a, um, when they did uh, expanded release for Sticky Fingers. So it is out there and you can't hear it. Um, But they they considered it for release, but they ended up uh, going with the band's original version. Mm. So let's talk about Wild Horses. Great song, acoustic, third song on the album. One of the things, again, we get back to, you know, what makes the sound of this album and you, you hear that guitar, it's so pretty and full and, and thick. And that comes from Keith Richards, again, with the open tunings, but he did this one on a 12 string guitar. So yeah. on a 12, 12 string guitar, you got your main strings that are same size as like a normal six string guitar. And then you have another string right next to it, which is very, very thin. It's a much higher sounding. So with guitar strings, the fatter the string is, the lower the bass sound is. When you get up to those higher strings, they're very thin and tiny, but they sound uh, trebly, more, you know, more of a higher pitch. So when you combine those two together on a 12 string, 
you get some interesting resonation that happens between the strings and you get harmonics and things like that that you don't get with just six strings. What Keith did is down tuned it open or open tuned it, which it further like loosens up the strings a little bit more, makes them a little deeper, but it creates a whole different set of harmonics and resonations that happen with those, uh, you know, with, with the guitar. The other thing was that he used a slide on it at, at points in there. And, you know, you get this kind of octave effect where you hear the same note, but it's here. And then it's also up here. So it's the same note, but it's much higher. Um, so all of that kind of goes into that. I, I want to say it's a, a warm, wide sound, you know, on, on this oh, record. Yeah. You, oh, know? Yeah. you know, when you when you think about it, I, I wrote down, I was going to say to you, my thing about this song and the thing about the Stones, you know, I, I love to look at it this way. I just wrote down simple rock and roll, but the harmonies, right? And it, the, the Keith and Mick, just yeah. a perfect, perfect fit. They couldn't have asked for two better voices to sing harmony with. And yeah. it, really, it really shows. Yeah, really yeah, shows. definitely. You definitely yeah. hear it. Oh, yeah. So it, another interesting thing about Wild Horses is that the Stones were not the first people to release that song. Wow. It, was actually, it was actually recorded by uh, the Flying Burrito Brothers, who was Graham Parson back in the day. And uh, <laughs> they actually released a version in 1970. The Stones wrote it in 69, but Sticky Fingers didn't come out until 71. So Graham Parsons was a friend of Keith. And they often hung out and jammed and they influence each other to, to a degree. And so Keith just said, you know, gave this song to them and let them record a different version of it, which, you know, is not, I, I don't think it's very well known. I personally have not heard it. I, I don't know if you've ever heard it. No, I haven't. No, I, it's funny. You just brought up Graham Parsons. And I was like, my ears perked. I was like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting because Graham Parsons, I think, is one of those people that you hear so many people uh, talk about as an influence. Um, but a lot of people, I feel like, don't know his music as as well as as some of the bigger uh, stars. You know, there was so many there was so many background people back in the day who might have put out an album or two or just some cuts that were hits. You know, and, and even on this album, as we go further, we'll we'll recognize a few other people. I'm sure you're going to touch a little bit on Billy Preston, who I was always a big fan of, you know, and he was on this album and Billy Preston was one of those guys that, yeah, he had a couple of hits, but everybody loved to bring Billy Preston in to play oh, yeah. the album back in the day, right? It was, you know, the, let's face it, he played on a rooftop with the Beatles, so. Yeah, yeah, Billy Preston brought the funk, you know, he was, he, he really did, he funked up the Beatles. The Beatles were <laughs> oh. the whitest. The Beatles are the whitest band of all time, okay? Thank you, There's Billy. no funk in the Beatles. You know, it, it's funny. I got to show you sometime. We're having this conversation right now. But I want to show you. It was uh, it was during the concert for Bangladesh. And Billy Preston was playing. Uh, That's the way God planned it, right? And I know I go off on these stories, but it's amazing because Billy's dancing, right? He's got the garden going crazy. You know, he's on the stage. He walked yeah. away from the piano and you can see George Harrison's feet moving, like with the, just moving his feet. Like, cause he, he was like, he had to be like with Billy. And it was so funny to watch you said like, they were so white, but yet Billy had them all going. Oh George yeah. Har and well, how George can you Harrison, not, you know, was... that's one of my favorite 
types of music is funk music. I just, that oh. always gets me up and going. And I think Billy Preston had a bit of, um, had a bit of Stevie Wonder to him in the way he played, you know? Yeah, yeah. It was always that really upbeat, boom, 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 boom. Yeah, you know, yeah, that, I got you know, it right that with kind you. Of like I just felt the same vibe, way. Right? Yeah, yeah, that boom, 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 yeah. Right, and everybody felt, you know, he he could play it in, you play it in the fill and it takes over, yeah. So when you throw that in with the yep. horns and the blues riffs, it's such a great combination. Even though those things, you wouldn't necessarily go, oh, let's put all these three things together. When you do, it's it all comes together and just drives that music where you just can't not tap your foot, you know. <laughs> no, this this is truly, and that's why we're doing it. Overall, this is truly a magical album, you know. And yeah. When you think about it, the Stones were rock and roll, and Wild Horses is truly, I would have to say, their first ballad that they yeah. put out where they actually sang a ballad and really gave thought to doing a ballad. Right. So this is where Wild Horses came in and kind of changed them a little bit as a band. You know, yeah. they, they, they started to do some ballads. Mm -hmm. And then the 80s took over and everything was a ballad. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about Can't You Hear Me Knocking, which, again, please, this, this was please. my, <laughs> I, you know, and this. So when this album came out, I, I was a youngster, only seven years old. I was not oh. into it, you know, at, at, at its birth. Um, but for me, as, as a, a person who plays a little guitar, Can't You Hear Me Knocking is the song on this album. The riff in Can't, Can't You Hear Me Knocking, it, it's just scorching. As the word it's mind-blowing, right? Mind-blowing. I, I, I got to be honest with you, I played it at least five times this week in my headset, just sitting in my house. At least. Just to truly, truly, I couldn't stop listening to it. And I mean that. That's how good that song is. And my, my thing we want to say to everybody listening, is get the album out or download it, whatever you got to do. Listen to this album. You'll understand why we're talking about it today. Truly one of the most powerful albums ever in my world, I have to tell you. Yeah, for sure. Keith Richards, he's a basic, I wouldn't say simple. It's not, it's not enough to say simple, but he keeps every he keeps everything simple. He literally said, you know, can you hear me knocking? He said it was one of the easiest songs he ever wrote. And meanwhile, one of the greatest songs you'll ever listen to. Which yeah. goes to show you something about the balance of sometimes you just gotta do it. And that's right. what I like about the Stones. They got together and they just said, let's do this. And they did right. it. Yeah. Well, and they wrote a little bit differently. So like you hear the stories about the Beatles and they would come to the studio and John's got these five songs. Paul's got these five songs. George has got these songs. The, yep. the, the Stones, for the most part, wrote together a lot. Yes. Yeah. You know, they, they worked off of each other. But when you have that talent and those riffs just come out of you like that, you know, that that's a gift from a god you know that's that's nothing you can learn or or practice to get to when you have the team and you know you guys enjoy playing with each other and somebody throws a riff out and you take it and run with it or you throw a lyric to it you know i i would have to say that's the fun part of rock and roll where it's true down down in the gutter rock and roll is right. that it's just guys getting together with instruments and, and first starting out as a jam. You know, there are some bands that have gone in and we were talking about it on the last session that uh, Sabbath recorded in one take. Right. 
you know, what <laughs> in the in the studio playing? Yeah, N- not yeah. like overdubs and bringing in the band played. They recorded it. Dude, how great is that? That's yeah, the music I want to hear. That's what I want to hear. Yeah. So can't you hear me knocking? It's a long song. It's seven minutes and fourteen or sixteen seconds. But the interesting thing about it is Mick Jagger's done by two minutes and forty-five. So done. you know that 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 after that it just becomes the riff. <laughs> and Mick Taylor says that he was ready. Everybody started putting their instruments down, but he kept going. And so they yeah. all kind of grab, jump back in, and they kept <laughs> going. And you get this long. Uh, you know, this long five minute or almost five minute jam session, which to me sounds a lot like Santana. Do you, yep. do you get that at all on that? Because you got well, the horns going. It's a very kind of it's got it's got a little bit of a Latin feel to it, I think. Fascinating. You're talking about this. Right. Jagger disappears a little over two minutes. The riff. Nah, 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 right. Disappears after four minutes. Right. right. So the song was literally done. Jagger was done. They were done jamming with the riff. And there's another three minutes of them just playing these sounds, you know, like it's and they kept it in. Yeah. You know what? Well, it's if amazing. We're, if we're going to talk, yeah, it's amazing. And I realized that Jagger was gone and, and then they just jammed and they played it at the end. And it was just amazing, really, what it did. Right. But I want to say this one thing about this album that we can bring up. In today's world, you would never dream, ever dream, you know, of cutting a seven-minute song, right? Yeah, unless you're Neil Young. He still does some <laughs> long songs. He's got like 12-minute songs coming out still. Does That's he? Crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's nuts. Well, tw- yeah, well, there you go. There's a good point. And we, you know what? <laughs> I, I promise everybody listening in will certainly, you know, we can tap into some great albums of oh, Neil yeah. Young as well, right? Yeah, yeah. That sure. that last three minutes, three and a half minutes, you know, Keith Richards and Mick Taylor always talked about it. And this is what we were saying earlier. It actually happened by accident, which is great. There was no right. meaning behind it. Right. But... It's just the flow, the vibe. Again, God, we're back to man. the Sabbath and and nailing that stuff and, you know, and recording it so quickly. Um, so what there's another missed lyrics story. So uh, again, they, they, were, they got a little bit looser. I think they were kind of a little bit more organized, but I think as you got into this point with this end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s, there was a lot of drugs going around and stones loosened up a little bit and they didn't have anybody like writing down the lyrics while they're recording. So what they did was they had their security, their tour security guy listen to the record to transcribe the lyrics. (laughs) That's great. And then Mick would go take the transcription and try to fill in the gaps. And there was one line where they wrote down, yeah, I've got flatted feet now. So it's like that, uh, yeah, she's got cocaine eyes. And one of the lines they wrote down was, yeah, I've got flatted feet. Mick swore that he never, ever said that. (laughs) But they just left it because nobody can remember what the real lyrics were. There's there's nothing better than how this all came together. It's a masterpiece. So I don't care what they did and how they did. You know, truly, we're, we're talking today about a masterpiece of music. We really are. Yeah. So let's Uh, talk a little bit about Sway. mm. So again, this is, so they did three songs in, at the studio in Alabama. Then they went to, uh, I guess they went to Mix House next and then they finished it up in London. 
But Sway was, was, what, was the first song they recorded when they got to London at Mix House, actually. And so, again, this is in that studio that they were, uh, Led Zeppelin used it to record a bunch of their albums. The thing I love about this song, and Sway is probably one of the lesser known songs on mm-hmm. the album. It's still a popular song, I think, <laughs> among Stones fans. Yeah. But I just love that riff. It, to me, yeah. it's it's a it's a great riff, and you know, the song. I, I, it's just a, it has a special place in my heart. Well, that's what I was saying earlier about the whole album. The the songs that you don't hear are so so good. Sway being one of them. Yeah. Right? You know, just these. So it's not like somebody says, "Oh, you got to get this album because Sway's on it." But you really might want to get this album. Because Sway's on it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it, it didn't make the cut of the so-called great songs. But once again, just tremendous, everything about it. But it got overpowered, you know, by some truly, truly iconic music. And well, there that's we go again. I'm going to yeah, use you... the word iconic again, man. Right. But there's five. <laughs> so there's five legendary songs on this. I mean, legendary songs, mm-hmm. great all-time rock and roll songs on this yeah. album. And yeah. so when you're competing with that, the other songs seem a little less important, even though mm. I think they're not. But yeah. Keith wasn't even there when they recorded this song. So Sway was totally Mick Taylor and, and Mick Jagger. Yeah. And so, you know, it's a little bit of a different feel, but not that much. The other thing that, that the other interesting thing was that they had some famous backup singers on this. So they had Pete Townsend from The Who, they had Billy Nichols and also Ronnie Lane from Small Faces. They all sound wow. sang, uh, all sang background vocals on Sway. Ronnie Lane, wow, yeah, yeah, that's a blast from the past. Yeah, another, exactly. another guy who played on many many people's albums back in the day and a great friend of Clapton's. Sure, you know, and all these guys, you know, they were all friends. And they all knew each other, and from the Small Faces, is where they got Ron Wood. So. You know, yeah. when they go out and replace somebody, they're going back to the people they know and the people they're friends with, which, you know, happens with most fans, I think. So when I'm going to throw, throw in a rock and roll story, being that we talked about Ronnie Lane and do it what you must. But I, uh, I, saw, a thing <laughs> called, I, I saw a show called The Arms Tour. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. It was, it was because Ronnie Lane got sick and Clapton brought out everybody. And everybody under the sun, you could see how much they loved this guy, came out to support him. One of the greatest shows I ever saw in my life. Stones were there, you know, Jimmy Page, Joe Cocker. You know, so it was just like the greatest thing in the world. So these guys were more than just musicians. You got to understand, back in the day, these this is where you hung out. This is who your friends were. You know, so when we were out, you know, possibly growing up playing wiffle ball, basketball, whatever we were doing, these guys grew up in the music world together. You know, yeah. and, uh, and Mick Taylor, he came from uh, John Mayall. You know, oh, I was okay. just thinking about okay. that. I didn't know that. Huh. Well, a lot of these guys all met through John Mayall. He was like, he was like the super connector. Huh. You know, the blues breakers, everybody played sometime in their life. Ronnie Wood, Clapton, Jimmy yeah. Page with yeah, John yeah. Mayall, you know, and uh, right. and I and I just realized this is where uh, Mick Taylor came. He was introduced to the Stones right when they needed him by John Mayall. The other song that Keith was not in the studio for, <laughs> and you know, the, <laughs> as you hear the stories from, from Keith and Mick, I mean, Keith says it more than Mick does, but Keith says, I was out of it at the end there. So this is when he was getting into that bad place with drugs. But yep. as we know, nothing kills Keith Richards. So he's still here. But 
they went ahead and and also did Moonlight Mile without Keith. And he, so mm. you got two songs on the album and Keith Richards is like, I wasn't even involved. It was all Mick and Mick, you know. <laughs> but I know we're going to talk about this. And the reason I'm laughing is I have some points we're going to make when we roll along. But I guarantee you on that album, it said Jagger Richards on every song. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure. I, I don't. You know, I didn't check the credits. So yeah, I'm 100% yeah. Sure, no, I got you. It's just the yeah. fact that we'll talk about that. You know, I, I know a little background on that on everything that goes on with. Well, it's tell Jack. us what. Let's well, talk about it. You now. know, well, as we're talking about, it's <laughs> Sister Morphine. Right. So Sister Morphine was written by Marianne Faithful, huh? Who, who had recorded? Who had recorded it, and it went nowhere. But it was her backdrop. It was her telling the story of a friend who went right. in and had a car accident, needed morphine, and what the morphine meant in her life. And so it was pretty cool. It was written by Marianne Faithful. But the reason I bring that up is that the Stones took it, and I mean this when I tell you, and made it theirs. So no credits, no nothing to Marianne Faithful. Mick Jagger was dating her at the time, right? And if you look at the label, it's going to say, Jagger Richards, but huh, literally that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. These are the little things that I that I really got into, and when, when I was studying the Stones and going over and thinking about it, you know what what their background was. They and I, I'm going to share this now. I wanted to say it to you earlier. You know, when you think about the Stones and why Mick Taylor didn't stay very long, very very talented guy you'd want to hold on to. But sure. when you think about the Stones, the Stones truly are Jagger Richards. Oh whoever, yeah. And whoever they choose to have around them, they right. established that early on, that right. no matter what, the well, Rolling Stones were Jagger Richards. And originally it was Brian Jones' band. So Brian Jones started the band, brought yeah. in Mick, and Mick brought Keith. Yeah. And so that's how it became the band. But once they started writing, uh, Brian Jones, I don't know if he was the best songwriter, but it really shifted into where Jagger and Richards were like pumping out song after song after song. Yeah. And they kind of took over. And I don't know, you know, I don't know that that's what pushed Brian into so much issue with the drugs. I'm sure, you know, he was an addictive person, so it was going to yeah. catch up with them sooner or later. Yeah. But it might have been one of those factors, you know, you know, you hate to say that that was a cause. But who knows? Well, you know, Mick Taylor left in 74 and basically just felt that if you're going to be in the Stones, you're going to be a rolling stone. Right. You're not going to think about writing music that you can take to the world on your own. And it really didn't come to fruition. Right. But well, they, Taylor, didn't, go ahead. Yeah, they, they didn't do solo albums until the 80s when they yeah. kind of broke up for a little bit. Right. Yeah, so Taylor, I, I Mick see Taylor, that. Mick Taylor had it in his heart a little bit, I think, to uh, literally go out and start doing some stuff on my own, which might not have been the greatest idea in the world, but I hope he's had a good life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think he's happy. And, you know, he played with them, too. They had him up on stage. I saw a video on YouTube where they had him come out and play some songs on a show, uh, you know, in the in the recent past. So. Oh, awesome. Yeah. All so right. let's. Let's talk about Dead Flowers. Uh, this Let's. to me, and I know I said, can't you hear me knocking? It's my favorite song in this album. I'm calling you out to on me, that. <laughs> yeah, Dead Flowers is my second favorite. I just yeah. love Dead Flowers. And, you know, so Mick was super into country music oh. and still is, you know, and I, I think that, you know, 
and he even said this that he overplayed the this country song a little bit so you can Love hear it in, in his voice where he like over the top with the country and yep. to me it sounds a very similar to faraway eyes which is on some girls a few years Ooh. later yeah but both those songs he's very kind of tongue-in-cheek but not really tongue-in-cheek it's very over the top with his you know, country, uh, countryness, so to speak. <laughs> you know what? Uh, talking about this and Dead Flowers, I'm going to bring up the point that I was thinking about. Mick was like a chameleon, right? If he was doing a blues tune, he'd become an old black guy. That's if, true, if, right? If we, yeah. If he was doing... You can hear... You can... <laughs> I, th I think... He has these older mix that, you know, I want to be an old blues guy. And I truly think on Dead Flowers, you can hear it. You know, it was almost like a parody of a redneck. You know, A little bit. Right. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. 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 So yeah. he gets, I think, you know, which is great about it and what makes the songs great. He didn't just sing him as Mick Jagger. I think he like develops these characters in his head. And right. like, you know, it, it's a lot of fun. Waiting on a friend, songs like that you hear. He yeah. steps into these characters that he becomes. So which is what made their songs, you know, be so good over all the years is it's not, it doesn't even really sound like a, song, a Stone song. You know what I mean? Right. Dead Flowers. Well, he's not just a great rock musician. He's a performer oh. and he's performing. And, you know, you, you said that you said that about the, you know, the blues stuff. And when you hear You Gotta Move, which is a, it's an old spiritual song yeah. that's been it was recorded by gospel musicians throughout like the 40s through the 70s. But when they went ahead and did that, he gets into that whole rumble, rumble, I'm the blues man, you know, but that song, that song to me, You Gotta Move oh. sounds so much like just it's a, a much better produced version of like old like Robert Johnson and and the real old old school blues guys they're playing those one note slides you know it's and it's so it's so true to the original uh style really yeah yeah so I, I love that about it everything about it and like you said you know Dead Flowers another tremendous song that you wouldn't even put in the top three. Maybe you would, I would. But when you go down this album, you know, it's tough to it's tough to make the top three on this album. Yeah, even though it definitely. should be there. If it was yeah, on oh, any yeah. other album, it'd be the greatest song on the album. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And the other the other song that's really well known and mostly, I guess, because of the riff is "Bitch." Um, so you know, again, classic Stones riff. Da -na 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 and yeah, just a great, great <laughs> piece of music. Uh, the thing about this is it's not about uh, a specific woman or women in general. He's not calling women bitches. It's about the being in love. That's what he's talking about. So it's it's being in love. It's a bitch. bitch. Yeah. Yeah. Not she's a bitch. It's a no. bitch. Love. No. It's a bitch. You know what? It's it, it's bitch, right? It was a phrase we used all the time. Oh, man, that's a bitch. Yeah, it's kind of kind of faded a little bit. But right. We used it all the time. Oh, man, that's a bitch. So yes. really, that's just the, again, you're talking about guitar work, right? Iconic chords, things that stick in your head. You know, just tremendous, tremendous. Great, great song. Uh, yeah. I want to when I'm when I'm saying to you and when we're listening to this and anybody listening and all our listeners out there, keep in mind what we're talking about. Play it. You'll understand what we're saying, because Charlie crushes it on bitch. Oh yeah, I, 
crazy, crazy, consistently through. Just that's, and that's the thing. It's the consist- consistency. He's rock solid. Rock from start to finish. Charlie Watts is killer. I, I got I got a little bit of a goosebump right now. I got to share it with you because I just love how he goes from start to end. And if you ever if you know anything about Charlie Watts, he sits there, not a smile on his face, just boom, boom, just just playing, but kills it on this song. So yeah. first song, play it. You'll love it. Yeah, it's great. It, 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 interesting story about this song when. Uh, when they first wrote it, it was a little bit sluggish and slow. Yep. And then Keith walked in, took a shot at it, sped it up a little bit and just found that groove, which is mm. the song is, is it, it's all about that groove. And that comes back to that Charlie. Groove. So yeah. when he, nice. you know, and Keith, since Keith is such a rhythmic rhythm guitar player, yep. it's, it really does kind of mesh well with that rock solid drummer because you can get into that pocket and Keith can play from behind or ahead or a little bit, but they're always right there where the end result is, is perfect. They, they are so right there, right? And that's what we're talking about, the band. You know, Charlie Watson, Bill Wyman. Bill Wyman, you know, wherever he was, he would just hang out and play. You know, and yeah. I think we haven't even mentioned Bill Wyman, the, you know, the great Bill Wyman, who literally him and Charlie Watts were the, you know, the bottom. They were everything. Keith played on top of what Charlie Watts and, and Bill and Bill Wyman put out there. So that's what I'm saying. So iconic. Can I throw a lyric out to you? Uh, yeah. That we, didn't touch on, yeah. Uh, that we didn't touch on Dead Flowers. And uh, I'll be in my basement room with a needle and a spoon and another girl to take my pain away. You know, and what I wanted to say to that about the Dead Flowers is what started to happen is their music really started to, you know, envelop their lives. And they started to tell stories about what was really going on during this album. You know, we yeah. mentioned 69, 70, the challenges they had, but they were really starting to get progressive at this time. Their person, and you think about it, they all pulled it together pretty well throughout the years because they were progressively getting more and more addicted which is an interesting way to look at. So Dead Flowers had a lot of meaning and some of the lyrics are in there like, hey, perhaps they were like a cry for help. You know, right. This is where my life is right now. So well, we don't you think can, about them. And, but, and you, you do see that too. You see that on uh, Exile. You know, that album is deep. I think that's where in the, they're in the depths of, of mayhem and drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Um, and so over those couple of years where, where they've got these albums, you, you 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 hear it in the songs, you hear it in the lyrics, you hear it everywhere. Yeah. Keith often said my saddest lyrics, you know, uh, they really uh, sometimes can be accurate. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing. Yeah, the he, most he, truthful he, ones, right? If you ever listen to an interview with him, the most truthful lyrics, the ones you go like, wow, it was coming from this is where I'm at. This is real. This is the truth. Right. So they're, they, they were damaging themselves and they knew it, but they still put out some of the greatest music throughout. It, oh, yeah. Amazing. Consistently. All right. Where do we want to take so that's this? It. Ahead, man. That's it for Sticky Fingers. Oh, nice. Any last thoughts? Well, um, I, I have one. We talked about Sister Morphine, which was great. Um, you know, Moonlight Mile, fantastic. It was a killer, killer song. And all I want to share on Moonlight Mile and why it became one of my favorites is... Uh, it literally, we were talking about what they brought in and other players. It's the only song that they had strings. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, they, they had violins and cellos and they had a string section. 
And it, it just, it's just in the fade at the end. So when you listen to the album, just listen to the fade at the end. They brought in some strings and it's just absolutely beautiful. So Don, really, you know, sticky fingers, man. I'm glad we got to do this. Always yeah. good to be with you. But man, oh man, I, again, I just want to listen to the album over and over and over. It's my only suggestion to do it. I, I said it to my wife, Don, I want to share this with you. I said, just go put this on. Just go put this on. <laughs> So I hope everybody enjoyed what we had to say about Sticky Fingers. Listen to it, you know, subscribe, hit the button below, wherever it might be. We'd love <laughs> you to join us along the way. Yeah. Thank you so much, Tom. Don, real good, man. Thanks. All right. We'll see you next time. All right.